All right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Get turned on here. I don't know if you, any of you ever watched the uh, Carolina Panthers play, but usually on the the first offensive series. <laughs> sound effects today. The first offensive series. Cam Newton will stand back behind the center and he'll put his hands under his face mask and. Then he'll rub his hands like this, and I just, I think he's praying that uh, he does okay. So uh, that's kind of what I do in my head uh, when we get up here, because uh, um, uh, it's always a little scary. It may not look like it, but it's always a little scary. And you want to get it right. So uh, here's, a, here's a little trivia question. Um, you know, off and on we um, encountered the book of Ruth, and I don't know, was it in here we were talking about Ruth not too long ago? Uh, or maybe it was something that Mary and I were talking about at home. But uh, So here's a trivia question for you. Uh, who is Ruth's mother-in-law? Who is Ruth's other mother-in-law? Think about it. All right, we are in Hebrews chapter 11. If you know it, don't shout it out. If we are in Hebrews chapter 11, and we finished up um, around verses uh, 26, 7, 8, somewhere in there. We we're talking about Moses, and Dad was just talking about uh, Exodus, and uh, uh, Exodus kind of starts off with, with Moses, and that's uh, verse 23. And um, verse 26, he says, um, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward uh, in other words, he, he had that choice, uh, enjoy the, the benefits of being a, a prince, uh, or do I go with my people? And of course, he had been taught at his mom's lap, and uh, God got to him. And it says in verse 27, by faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And of course we know the, the story of the, um, the uh, angel of death and the, the, whole, down a bit. the whole concept of Passover where if um, the blood was, was sprinkled over the doorposts that the angel of death would not visit that home uh, because sprinkling of the blood. So that harkens back in the ear it would have reflected back to a couple of passages in uh, chapter 10 where it says but it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin right but yet here we talk about Moses and he was the one that sprinkled the blood and it was important for the writer to talk about Moses and to highlight Moses because uh, back then it says um, that for the Greek speaking Jews um, Moses was considered unusually close to God and perhaps considered uh, the greatest person in history up until that time. So um, when he's talking about Moses and talking about um, an example of faith, but yet still not the same as Jesus. So um, this sprinkling the blood, uh, the blood would refer back um, to the Passover, of course, but then it's been referenced in chapter 10. And then a few verses later, we have this concept of uh, 
In verses 22, it says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So this concept of the blood and of sprinkling uh, pulls those two terms together, and uh, just like any good um, uh, orator, uh, kind of connecting with what uh, he had talked about before. So we have... Uh, verse 28, wrapping up our little section on Moses, by faith he kept the Passover, sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And on to verse 29, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled seven days. Remember that story, right? Um, take a lap, rest, take a lap, rest, take a lap. And each day for the first six days, on the seventh day, what'd they do? Seven laps, right? And then they blew the trumpet and it all came falling down. Um, an example of faith on that 12th lap, right? <laughs> Going around. Uh, and of course, this was just thousands of people making that lap. It was fascinating. Um, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now remember, we talked about how this, this whole recounting of these stories of faith were for the purpose of having them reflect back on their whole spiritual history, their, their spiritual photo album, you might say, and how that could be an encouragement to them. And as I think we go through this, I think, you know, one of the, one of the downfalls of us having such a, a rich written history and nowadays a rich photographic history, um, we miss a little bit of the story, of the oral tradition, of, of how we, you know, how we tell the story of our family. So if you picture them telling the story of their family, and I want us to continue to to think about how you know we we're heading toward Christmas right and it's a time rich with tradition and um, we always read what we call the Christmas story uh, at our house um, I don't know how much further back than our grandparents it went my grandparents but um, probably far back um, so how can we tell our own story to our children to our grandchildren and so forth um, as one commentator said, the long catalog is nearly done. From here on, the pace quickens, but before we allow ourselves to be caught up by that, we should pause and reflect. The writer of the Hebrews is determined that his readers should be thoroughly grounded in the long story to which they have fallen heir. It's our story too, remember. They need to go back to the family album to remind themselves where they had come from. They need to think through the sort of faith that their forebears had and see how the long purposes of God, cherished and believed in the face of impossibilities, dangers, and even death itself, are finally fulfilled in the events concerning Jesus and the new life they have as a result. How much more must we in our day learn to tell not only the story of Israel, but the story of Jesus himself and his first followers carefully and with gratitude so that our faith and hope may in turn be nourished from the source. And I would add, to weave into the Bible story our own personal stories of faith 
so that our children will know that we're part of this. So think about, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Remember Boaz? As he's looking across the field and maybe taking note of this um, single woman who otherwise wouldn't have been out there and you think he might have had a little more compassion knowing that his mama was Rahab, the prostitute? How God redeemed her? And now here's Boaz? So the answer to the trivia question, Naomi's second mother-in-law was Rahab. Rahab, the mother of Boaz. It's in Matthew. It's in the end of Ruth. You think... Part of his story was, as he was reflecting on his willingness to maybe take a, a bride who had already been married, to think about how God redeemed his mom, who had known many men. Probably part of that story. We're going to meet a couple of other people, or a few other people, um, including some that were not familiar to me, at least at first glance. Verse 32 and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. Now, there's a couple ways you can handle a verse like this. You can keep going. Or you can kind of dwell a little bit. There's not much middle way to do this. We're going to try to take middle ground. Real briefly, do you know the story of Gideon? All right, so we're, these, are, these are judges, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. These are judges, back in the time of judges. Um, the story of Gideon was um, we get the, the concept of laying a fleece out because he wasn't really sure what God wanted him to do, or he kind of was, but he was doubting, so he kind of put God to the test with this whole fleece thing. And then we know the story about him having a big army and God telling him to go uh, to the army and then telling him something that, that probably no military leader wants to hear and that is you've got too many people <laughs> you need to thin some of these people down and then you know the story how God was faithful to what he said and they captured um, uh, their enemy with um, 300 torches and jars um, and um, it was a great story but what about I had to look up what's the story, story of Barak so let's does anybody know the story of Barak? If you, if you do, I'll let you tell it, and then we'll move on to the next thing. Okay, so I didn't, so I had to look it up. So um, we can go to Judges. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Chapter 4, I think. So remember, uh, one of the interesting things about... This passage is, we see, we see amazing heroes, but we see uh, not so savory characters as well. And we won't read all this, but um, in chapter 4 we hear of probably the best judge of the bunch, who just so happens to be the woman of the bunch. Um, 
Deborah was a prophetess. This is verse 4 of chapter 4. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah and she would do judgment. People would come. Verse 6, so she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and troops, and I will give them into your hand. Barak says to her, If you'll go with me, I'll go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. She says, I will surely go with you, and, and so forth. So the interesting thing is, here you have Barak, given as an example of faith, remember, but he's reluctant. He won't go unless Deborah comes along. She has to remind him later, hey, you know, um, God's got this, but you need to kind of, just kind of, you know, she's kind of, just kind of get this concept. She's kind of urging him along. Anyway, this all happens, and then it, it finally ends in rather dramatic fashion where they slaughter everyone but the leader, and the leader is um, looking for a place to hide, is welcomed by yet another woman hero who says, yeah, come here, lay down, I'll hide you, cover you up, and then drives a tent peg through his temple. Uh, there's good stuff in the Bible, great stories, um, uh, things that would be more than PG-13 probably. But uh, yeah, read that story. It's, it's, I, I shouldn't have, spoiler alert, I should have given away the ending. But, uh, you know, fascinating story there of Barak in Hebrews, gets his name in the Bible in the Old and the New Testaments as an example of faith, but yet kind of reluctant. Maybe not your strongest example of faith, but God obviously used him. We know the story of Zam Samson. Uh, not exactly the most thoughtful of the judges. Uh, impulsive, yes. Um, Short-sighted, yes. No pun intended. Um, Samson, you know. We know that story. What about Jephthah? Do you know the story of Je Jephthah? Interesting story. I had to review it. Uh, basically, you know, if you, if you were thinking of a story that you could present to an inner city gang leader that would resonate, I think it would be the story of Jephthah. Uh, so you can go over to chapter 10 of Judges. I'm sorry, chapter 11 of Judges. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was a son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. The bastard child. You're out of here. So, what does he do? He goes and gets a bunch of other um, unsavory characters. Verse 3. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers, lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So, kicked out of his family. 
no connection, no inheritance. He gathers up a gang, right? And presumably does what gangs do. But there's a twist. There's some threats coming. So now what do the, the uh, elders of Gilead do? Say, so, you know, we need some help. You know, I know Jephthah, pretty tough cuss. Let's get him. And sure enough, verse 4. After time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob, and they said, come be our leader, <laughs> that we may fight against the Ammonites. He said, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? <laughs> Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And basically, with no pride whatsoever, they said, yep, that's why we're here. <laughs> so you can go fight with us and be our head. And he said, if you, if you bring me home, verse 9, to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I'll be your head. So that's what happens. Something, I mean, and that in itself is fascinating enough right there. You know, how God, you know, there's another story of God's redemption. Right? But what's fascinating to me, and I won't go into it, well, I will a little bit. So there's this little diplomatic meeting. Verse 12, Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you come to fight against my land? And the king says, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land, and I'll leave out the details. And Jephthah, in verse 15, says, Israel didn't take away your land. Turns out another, the Amorites, had captured part of the Ammonite land. And so when Israel later captured the Amorites, they also happened to kept, capture the part of the Ammonite land that had been under the control of the Amorites. Right. So anyway... The fascinating to me is that even though a bastard child kicked out of his physical family, he knew enough of the history and, and felt ownership in God's family and the people of Israel that he could not only know that history, but present that to the king and accept it as his own story. You know the funny part about this whole thing? This was 300 years after they had lost the land. You know, crazy. I think that is interesting that he gets included back in Hebrews. Go back to chapter 11 of Hebrews. <clears throat> Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, the kind of the, you might say, the doubting judge, Barak, the reluctant military leader, Samson, 
the short-sighted uh, brawn more than brain judge Jephthah the bastard gang leader we know David's mis bad judgments and sin and so forth and he goes through and talks about their part of the story verse 33 who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Who's he talking about there? Quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women recede back their dead by resurrection. Do you know what he's talking about there? A couple of the, the big guys, the prophets. There was Elijah. She had, or rather he had been in the situation where um, he needed a place to stay. He stayed. Remember, there was no food. Uh, just one serving left of, of flour and oil. He says, go make me something and then you can make something for you and your son. She does so and then the miracle that the flour and the oil never ran out until the rains came. But then, this is First Kings 17 if you want to read the story, then the son became very ill and died and Elijah says bring me your son and he carries the son upstairs and prays over the son and God raises him back to life the second story was Elisha he also needed a place to stay he was staying with this very rich Shunammite woman he was uh, having his meals and so forth, and he says, you know, you know, what can I do for you, basically? And she says, I have no son. He prays and says, next year you'll be cradling a son. And sure enough, um, she gets that son, but then that son grows and, and then dies. And then again, uh, he, I don't know what happened to him. I, I think he had an aneurysm. He had a severe headache and then died. Sounds like aneurysm. Um, Elijah came in the house, saw the child laying on the dead on his bed. He went in, shut the door, and prayed. And uh, laid hands, put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands, stretched himself out upon him. The flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again, walked once back and forth in the house, went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. That's real, just really cool. <laughs> um, and uh, said, okay, here's your son. And I mean, so again, back to Hebrews. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. Tradition says that's referring to Jeremiah. 
They were sawn in two. Tradition says that's referring to Isaiah. You know, prophets <laughs> weren't always appreciated. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, everything that they went through um, was still waiting for the perfection that this group of people that were hearing it contemporary, uh, contemporaneous rather with the writer of, of Hebrews, then through Jesus, the whole plan was perfected. So, as we kind of walk through this, some observations. I guess some questions. Were the people in this list, were they all happy endings? No. Um, did they all get to know that it was all going to be worth it one day. Did they all have good pedigrees? We know that's not true. Um, was there some unifying characteristic about why they were chosen? to be in the list. Not really. Um, the, the whole unifying thing is just the people of God relate to God through faith. Were these people good enough to be put on a pedestal? <clears throat> almost universally know at some points in their life. Um, you know, some of them had their high points but also had their very low points. Which, which, uh, you know, it does, uh, it does it's, in, it's interesting to me that uh, Nowadays, um, any public mistake is probably enough to ruin someone's career. If it's the, quote, right mistake. Um, this concept that people can't... It seems like the concept is, the expectation is that people are perfect, and then if they prove not to be perfect, then any judgment, any punishment, they just deserve it. Bad for them, and that's that. And the whole world becomes a judge. Now, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of examples of things that deserve condemnation. 
But somewhere along the line, is there ever a, a voice that says, you know, we're all dirty, rotten sinners. I guarantee if any of us had our laundry exposed, none of us would be doing life. And that literally by the grace of, except for the grace of God, I would be in the same boat. But that's why we need Jesus. I mean, I, I, <laughs> this concept that someone can truly be redeemed seems lost on us right now. You know, there was this um, crazy sort of redemption that about 10 years ago you used to go through, right? If you did mess up, what was the pathway back? You said you were sorry to Oprah. Right? You went on Oprah. She would pull out a very good apology from you. And with her endorsement, you could kind of move on. I'm serious. That's what used to happen. I don't know where that rabbit came from. Uh, all right. I found, I found a nice summary, uh, which, you know, as Dad and I say continually, very little of what we say, if anything, is original. And the original stuff uh, probably isn't nearly as good. Um, but one of the... Um, uh, one of the commentators I've been looking at, uh, he had this section called The Misconceptions of Faith. And he says, another of our challenges in, in applying this chapter to contemporary life is getting past certain misconceptions. One, he says, there's a type of faith that has to do with God's goodness toward me, right? This is, the, if you have the right kind of faith, God's going to bless you, right? And... Even the pastors who say, you know, if you have enough faith and put this in an envelope and send it to me, um, then God is going to really bless you. Maybe not as much as he's going to bless me by that check you're going to send me, but he's going to bless me. Right? Um, I think I've shared before, when I, when I was in college, there was a, this pastor, and literally you could take your hand and trace it on a paper plate and send that <laughs> tracing in, and he would put his hand on, on your hand, and, and you would feel blessed. Uh, I think you would be more blessed if you sent along a check. Um, misconception number two, this concept of faith equals creed. By that, what he means is that Sometimes we, we put a lot of faith in our statement of faith, in our doctrine, in our um, catechism, to use a word that uh, we don't use as much, but, you know, um, in our, you know, what we believe. That's where our faith is. Well, those are just guidelines, right? That's not real faith in a heart thing. Um, this concept of faith being just a blind leap. Like, well, I'm just going to have faith that I'm doing the right thing. What they mean is I'm going to do something stupid and just I'm going to have faith about it. That's not this kind of faith. Then this concept you'll hear also called um, just faith because, uh, you know, maybe um, you're reflective and you're devoted, right? They might say, this person had a strong faith. 
they don't connect it with who you're facing, right? So they could, they could be a Buddhist monk. Oh, strong faith. Well, here's a little clue. It matters who's your faith, who your faith is in, right? And then, uh, let's see. Was that the last one? Yeah, I guess it was. Um, but then he comes up with some observations about ele chapters 11, and I think this is a good way to maybe wrap this up. Faith involves confident action. He says most of the examples involve a person acting confidently in accordance with what God says. Noah built the ark, Abraham obeyed, etc., etc. And even some of the examples I talked about, you know, Brack still had to go out with the army. He still had to strap it on and go fight some folks, right? Uh, Jephthah still had to go meet the king and deal with managing these people who used to hate him. I mean, that still took some action. Number two, and this all this, by the way, is, gonna, is in the study notes. You can uh, read it. True faith is action taken in response to the unseen God and his promises. That's what I was saying. It makes, it makes a difference on who you put your faith in. You know, sometimes, you know, you've got so much going on and I just have to say, okay, all I know to do is to do my next thing. And Lord, I just hope, you know, and pray that, that this is where you want me to hit. Sometimes that light doesn't seem to extend much further than your next step. And those steps are definitely taken in faith. Point number three, I really like faith involves God's working extraordinary miracles in the lives of ordinary people. And even if history seems to make some of these people seem extraordinary, um, most of them were ordinary for much of their life. Um, we've said this before, faith works in a variety of situations. Um, he makes the observation, he said, other than maybe the resurrection, he said, we don't have one healing uh, he says, we have an offering, we have transportation to heaven, we have building of a boat, moving of a family, ability to have a child, obedience and offering the child back to God, blessing of children, seeing into the future, defying authority, choosing mistreatment above pleasure, keeping religious ordinances, suffering persecution, and so on. By the way, the, that Jephthah, you need to read that story because he, he makes a vow that It's tough to follow through on. Finally, the observation, faith is rewarded by God. Faith is rewarded by God. Um, it says, faith is confidence that results in action carried out in a variety of situations by ordinary people in response to the unseen God and his promises with various earthly outcomes, but always the ultimate outcome of God's commendation and reward. In essence, biblical faith involves people orienting their lives to God and his values against the perceived realities and values espoused by the world. Faith is all the times that we say, you know, God, this doesn't make sense, but I'm trusting you. The world's telling me so-and-so, but I'm trusting you. The world's telling me so-and-so, but you know, the Bible says to do it this way, so I, I'm just going to do it this way. And that's how we relate to God, and that's how God 
does his work in us and his work in the world. There's some cool discussion questions I found I put at the bottom of the chapter, and we better quit. Uh, quick thought question. You can shout it out if you want. Of the people in the list, anybody you particularly identify with? So think about that and uh, figure out how could you work that story into your next family dinner conversation. Father, we thank you that you have given us such a great history of how you've worked in ordinary people and help us uh, to acknowledge your work in our lives and to tell that story um, so that you can be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.